Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 tonight is where we're going to start. Ephesians 4, 16. For those of you that this is your first time to the mind, we go through a book of the Bible every semester. Uh, but each week can stand on its own. And that's why, you know, obviously folks, you know, aren't here each and every week. But you come as your schedule allows you to come. And we'll make sure that when you are able to be here that you get something practical that that you can apply to your Christian life that, that very day, that very week. In fact, tonight, to start things out with, I'd like to start out with a question. I'd like you to contemplate the answer to this question throughout the night as we move towards the, the end of our study tonight. And that is, where will you be when you get to where you're going? Where will you be when you get to where you are going. Because every person in here is going somewhere. Where are we going? Hopefully the Word of God can shed some light on that tonight. But I wanted to pick it up in verse 16 because that's the verse we left off with before the break. And can I just say, being away from you guys for a couple weeks, I'm getting really like shaky and you got to understand, i got so much I want to share with you tonight that, oh my goodness. So anyway, let's just dive in and get started. At the end of verse 16, Paul talks about one of the culminations of the body of Christ growing is that it's going to grow in love. And that's one of the ways we know we're growing is that our love for God is growing and our love for each other is growing rather than our love for self or putting ourself first. In other words, we're going to be God-centered rather than me-centered in the way I look at life and the way I live my life. In fact, then beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul begins to lay down the differences of how a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, loves, lives, and thinks compares to those who don't have Christ in their life. And, and Paul is just saying, guys, if, if we let God define our life and define our church body, that there's going to be some distinctives, there's going to be some differences, and, and hopefully the reality of Christ in our life is truly making a difference in the way we live. That's why notice in verse 17, he says, So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. As the Gentiles do is just a phrase that's used in the New Testament to speak about those who have not come to a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in their life. And he simply says, when we come to Christ, there should be some changes taking place in our life. And it's not, it doesn't happen all at once, it's a process as we're going to see, but that we should no longer live as we did pre-Christ. After Christ, there should be changes taking place. Now, I want to set that phrase, futility of their thinking or purposelessness of the mind, aside for a minute. That's one of my main points tonight. We're going to come back to that. But I want to begin to see in verse 18, notice, those without Christ are darkened in their understanding from a spiritual perspective. God doesn't want us to be darkened in our understanding of Him. He wants us to understand what his way is, what His will is, what His Word says. In fact, the Bible says far from being in darkness that we are the children of light and we are called to walk in the light. And so God doesn't want us to be darkened. In our, just the opposite of what He contrasts here in verse 18. Notice also, being alienated from the life of God. Well, again, far from being alienated in the life of God, God wants us to be close up. And embrace the life of God. Not far away from God, but, but as close as we can possibly get. And to experience the life of God. That it's not just a quantity of a number of years that I live on earth, but it's a quality of life. It's life on a higher plane. It's, it's that abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. 10. I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The life of God. When a Christian is asked by somebody, what kind of life are you living? We should all be able to, to say, I'm living the life of God. Because God's life has been imparted to me. Unlike with those who 
have not come to Christ yet. Then verse, further on in verse 18, because of the ignorance that is in them. God doesn't want us to be ignorant of his ways, of his word, of his will. He wants to, us to know it. That's why he, one of the reasons why he gave us the Bible, because he could reveal his mind to us and we could have the mind of Christ rather than being ignorant of God and of his ways. And notice, don't miss this, they're ignorant, not because God made them that way, but it was through their own hardness of their hearts. You see, many times in the New Testament, the Bible encourages us as Christians to never let our hearts get hard, to, to always have a heart that, that is receptive to what God is saying and what, how God is speaking to us. Because we're all in danger of having, over time, a hard heart. And, and the, where the Word of God, like that seed, just sort of bounces off rock rather than penetrating the soil of our heart and really bringing forth fruit and producing wonderful things that God wants it to produce. In fact, that hardness of heart, notice in verse 19, leads to them being very callous, insensitive. Some versions even say past feeling. They have no feeling anymore for, this, for the spiritual, moral things of God. They're totally callous. They're insensitive. And can I just say that one of the most important traits that we as followers of Jesus Christ can carry with us through our lives is spiritual sensitivity. To be sensitive to the voice of God, to the moving of God, to the working of God in our lives. That's huge. And as we grow... As Paul has encouraged the Ephesians, that's one of the byproducts of our spiritual growth is going to be that heightened sensitivity to the working of God, to the voice of God, to the Spirit of God in my life. So again, you can see the contrast here. Huge differences, Paul says. This is the way maybe your life was, Paul says, pre-Christ, but this, this should not describe our lives after Christ, because this is not the kind of life that... God wants His followers, His children to experience. Notice because of their insensitivity too, they give themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And folks, it's not like this behavior is an accident. It's not like that somehow uh, this is a reluctant falling into air and they didn't know any better. No, Paul is making it very clear this is a choice. This is a conscious choice that they have made because their heart is hard and they are calloused to the things of God. And so they give themselves by choice over to these things because they believe that these things are going to satisfy them. That they're going to find true happiness and contentment and joy and everything they've ever been looking for in life in these things. And the sad thing is what they find is when those things just, they, it only spurs a desire to try more of those things because it's never enough. It never satisfies. And this is the life that Paul is painting here. But notice he says in verse 20, but you did not learn about Christ like this. You see, no one who has come to Christ learned that this was the way a Christian should live. In fact, it's very important that we are taught the differences. In fact, that's why Paul goes on to say, if indeed, verse 21, you heard about him and were taught in him. It is our responsibility to teach people as they come to Christ the difference and the contrast and, and what God wants to do in their lives and the kind of life that God wants them to experience and the changes that God wants to bring about in their lives. And that's part of our responsibility as teachers. But it's quite clear that the Christ whom they received expected from them a vastly different sort of life than the life they lived pre-Jesus. And notice Paul says, you did hear about this, didn't you? The spiritual truth that brought this great transformation to their former lives was embodied in Jesus because notice in verse 21, he says, if indeed you heard about him and were taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. 
And can I just say, amen, thank you, God, that there's truth in this world and it's found in Jesus. Because there's a lot that's not true out there in the world. And there are a lot of people looking for truth. I'm looking for truth every day. I'm like, Lord, give me truth. There's enough error. There's enough falsehood. There's enough lies out there in the world to last a lifetime. I want to know what's true. And Paul says, truth is embodied in Jesus. And truth is embodied in the word of Christ as well. So we do have the truth. We, we can get to the truth. We can find the truth that God has revealed to us through His Word. And it will be that truth, Jesus says, that sets us free and allows us to experience all that God wanted a human being to experience who came into a personal relationship with Him. That's why He says in verse 22, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to do three things at the end of this passage we're going to look at tonight. First of all, the first thing is to lay aside the old man, another way to describe my life pre-Jesus, who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. Paul says again, as you and I grow as Christians, one of the things that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is going to do in our lives is going to bring to the, our focus and to the forefront of our mind Things every once in a while that he wants us just to lay aside. These were the things of the old life. These were the things that, 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 you know, wrapped around me and that were so important to me pre-Jesus. But now that I've come to Christ, and now that I'm beginning to learn about God and walking with God and the ways of God and the will of God, I am beginning to understand that that this particular thing doesn't coincide with a life that goes after God. And so God says, when you come to that realization, when you and I come to that, that revelation that God gives us, then God says, then lay that aside so that you can keep on moving forward in your walk with God. And the cool thing is, if God tells me in His Word to lay it aside, He not only instructs me what to, to lay aside, but He gives me the power, the energy, the grace to lay it aside, and to lay it aside for good, and to move on. And so that's encouraging as well. So here's a question again. Not only where will you be when you get where you're going, but the second question of the night is this. As you contemplate this passage, and I'm not even asking you to, in your heart right now, come up with something right now. I'm asking you to take this passage home, meditate on it, read it, pray about it, and ask the Lord, Lord, what do you in my life right now want me to lay aside so that I can keep on moving forward in my walk with you? Because you see, there's always things that's going to come up as we grow that in a sense are hindering our walk with God. They're obstacles to our continued growth with God. And God points to those things and says, now child, lay those things aside. That's part of growing in our walk with God and becoming all that God created us to be. Then notice also verse 23, the second step. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word renewed means renovated. And it's a continual thing. It's something that I do for the rest of my life. That I allow God basically to continue through His Word and by His Spirit to tweak my thinking. To get my thinking what it needs to be rather than maybe the way the world thinks or the way I used to think pre-Jesus, the way I looked at things pre-Jesus, the way my perspective was before Christ. And that's why throughout my life, I've got to allow the Word of God to renew and renovate and come in and sort of do a work in my mind so that I'm always walking forward with God's mind and the way God looks at things rather than the way I've looked at things again before I came to Christ. That's the second step. And then the third step is verse 24. And to put on the new man who has been created in God's image. You see, just like Adam and Eve were physically created in the image of God, all who are new creations in Christ are also to come into conformity to the image of God as well. And to reflect the life of God to others who can hopefully see God through us and 
in our lives as we produce godliness. And so Paul says, put on. And I love that, that idea of putting off, putting on. It's like putting off clothes, putting on clothes. And he's simply saying as we grow as a Christian, there's going to be some old clothes. Clothes that really don't fit us anymore. Clothes that for the Christian, the growing Christian, are out of style. They're not in anymore. And we need to be willing to lay those aside and never put those on. And God gives us new clothes that we can, because God doesn't want us to be spiritually naked. And the other thing, God doesn't want us to carry around a dead body all the time. Because that's why he says, lay aside the old man. Now, how creepy would it be for you and I to walk around with a dead body on our back? And that's exactly the picture that Christians are whenever we're carrying around the ways of, of our old life before we came to Christ, even though we're now a Christian. It's like carrying a corpse on our back. And Paul says, lay that down, lay that aside, get rid of that weight of the old life, and let's move on to a new life. And again, if God commands us to lay it aside, to be renewed in our mind, and to put on the new man, then God will give us the strength to do all of that. And as we grow, God will continue to show us things we need to lay aside, and He'll give us the strength to lay those aside. He'll give us ideas of how our thinking needs to be tweaked. And then he'll tell us what needs to be put on. Now, beginning next week, when we get to verse 25, we're going to look at some specifics. Paul gets very specific about things to put off and put on. But tonight, I want to go back up to that concept of the futility of their thinking at the end of verse 17. Very important phrase. For me, it's the key phrase of this entire passage of Scripture. Because, again, as we approach the passage tonight, the question was, where will you be when you get where you are going? And the first thing that Paul wants to do in this passage we've looked at tonight is to lay out the differences. The differences that should be there between a Christian and a non-Christian. And an ever-growing difference, because as we grow in Christ, obviously there's going to be more things that the Spirit of God tells us throughout our life to lay aside and more things to put on. And it's a lifelong process, so don't be discouraged. It's not like we put off everything in the old man and put on the new man overnight. It doesn't happen that way. And that's why we all need to be patient with ourselves and patient with each other. And I encourage Christians all the time, remember something. God is more patient with you than you are with yourself, probably. So remember, it's a lifetime process. But in this lifetime process, here's the key. Paul says another huge difference is that those who don't know Christ are shooting at the wrong target their whole life. That's really what the phrase futility of their thinking or purposelessness of their mind means. That they're going through life and they're saying, that's what life's all about. I'm, I'm going after that. I'm, I'm shooting for that. That's, that's what life is. That's why I'm here. That's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to fulfill me. That's what's going to totally satisfy me. That's the target. And, and the Bible says it's not like people who don't know Christ don't have targets. They do have targets. But the Bible says because they don't have the life of God in them and God's mind is not driving them and leading them and guiding them, they're always shooting at the wrong target. Well, if they're shooting at the wrong target, then please, God, tell me what is the right target? What should I as a Christian be going after my whole life? So that I make sure at the end of my life, I've hit the target that God wants me to hit. We're going to go out of the book of Ephesians. And go to the book of Philippians. The very next book. To chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. First of all, the word goal. 
Unlike in the English language, one of the other differences between the English language and the Greek language that the New Testament was written in is word order is very, very important in the Greek language, not so much in the English. A word doesn't necessarily have to be in any particular place in the sentence to be the main concept in English. But in Greek, if the word was at the beginning of the sentence, that means it was the most important word, the most important thing that the writer wanted to get across. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, the first word in the Greek sentence is the word goal. Even though it might not be the first word in our English translation, it was the first word in this verse. Stressing the importance, emphasizing the importance of goal. Why? Because Paul said to the Ephesians, here's the problem, guys. Those who don't know Christ are shooting their whole life after the wrong target. And so we need to talk for a few minutes about, well, then what is the right target? What is the right goal? In fact, the Greek word for goal here in Philippians 3.14 is the word skopos. It refers to a target, that on which the eye is fixed, the distant mark looked at. The goal or the end that one has in view. And Paul says, with this goal in mind. Now, when we come to this, we have to be careful. It reminds me of a story of a medieval king who was walking with some of his soldiers through the forest one day. And as he was walking through the forest, he just saw all these arrows. And I mean, they were just all on the bullseye. And there were these targets and bullseyes on trees throughout the forest. And every one of them, I mean, the arrow was just right in the center. And he turns to some of his soldiers. He says, we've got to find out who's doing this. Because if they're that good of a shot, I want them on my team. I I want this archer in my army. And they walked a little bit further. And here was this 10-year-old boy. And he said, well, King, I'm, I'm the one who shot those arrows. He said, come on. He said, no, I, I really did. I, I shot those arrows from a hundred paces. He said, I swear. And the king said, well, how did you do it? Tell me how you did it. He said, well, I just, I just got that tree in my sights and I just took the arrow and I just put it towards the tree. And then I went to the tree and I painted the target on. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of people live their lives. It's like, I meant to hit that. Really? Was that the goal? Are you sure? Because without a goal, and that's why Paul says it is important that Christians have a goal. Now, a couple things. Notice in this passage, too, that the goal is the prize and the prize is the goal. Because what is the goal? Here it is. The goal for every Christian And it's the goal, it's the target for every Christian, not just for some Christians, for every Christian, is to become like Jesus Christ. That's the goal. You see, I don't have to, as a Christian, go through my life going, God, what's the target you want me to shoot for? What's the goal you want me to go after? I don't want to be like these people who don't know Christ and they're shooting at targets that... It's the wrong target. It's the futility of their thinking because they don't know what target to shoot for. You have told me in your word what target I should be shooting for. In fact, notice up in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul says very clearly, my aim is to know him. And in the context, he's talking about Christ. To experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. Paul says that's the target, that's the goal. Throughout this whole chapter 3 of Philippians, that's what he's talking about to these guys. He says, guys, this is what we need to be going after in our lives, to become like Jesus Christ. And to know him is to become like him. And Paul says, that's the goal and that's also the prize. Because as I go after Christ and as God's life becomes my life, that's a great prize. But that's also the goal. Now, something we have to consider when we talk about goals. Goals always conflict, consciously or unconsciously. That's why throughout our life, everyone prioritizes or reprioritizes through our lives. Because we all have sort of different goals, and then there's sometimes where those two goals 
conflict. And then we have to prioritize, okay, what's the most important goal? And it's when we begin to prioritize our lives that we really, even as Christians, see the value that we as Christians place on becoming like Christ. Because when we go through life and we say, I want to be like Christ, I I realize that the Bible teaches that's the goal, that's the target, that's why God saved me. It wasn't just to forgive me of my sin, which is awesome. Bless God forever for forgiving us of our sin and taking us to heaven. But the more important thing is God wants to impart his very life into my life and for me to become like Jesus Christ. That's the goal, that's the target. But in life sometimes, let's face it, if we're honest, we choose this over here, which actually then sort of cancels out us moving forward, becoming like Christ. And even though we may say with our lips, oh, that's my value, that, that's what's most important to me is becoming all that God wants me to be. Let's face it, every once in a while in our life, by the decisions and choices we make, even every day, we're showing where our value is. And that's why I asked the question, where will you be when you get to where you're going? Because you see, God wants his children to know where they're going. I love what Jesus said when he was here and, you know, people began to question him. He says, listen, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I don't think you do. And God wants all of his children to have that same assurance and that same confidence as we face life. That, that we could truly say, I know where I came from. I, I don't believe I was a product of evolutionary stuff. I, I believe I was a unique creation of God and that God knit me together in my mother's womb. And I, I'm a creation of God. I know where I came from. And I know where I'm going. I know what my target is. I know what my goal for life is. And so it just reminds us too about how important our everyday choices and decisions are. Because it's a matter of we've got to go through life realizing that sometimes yearly, Most of the time, at least monthly, sometimes even weekly, maybe even every once in a while, daily, tweaking my priorities and saying, you know what, I've got this opportunity over here, but if I take that, guess what? That's going to circumvent me going after my goal. And my goal should be Paul's goal. My aim in life is to know Him more deeply, more intimately, more greater. I want to I go after Christ like I've never went after Christ. And I want every one of my decisions and choices to be subservient to that choice. That's the number one choice. That's my number one allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And to make Him the preeminent one in my life and the priority of my life. I like what Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys for years, said, though. He said, you know what my job is as the coach of the Dallas Cowboys? It's to make these men do what they don't want to do so they can achieve what they always wanted to achieve. You see, even professional athletes, they don't like the idea of getting out there in the summer and going through training camp and lifting weights and you know, running and all that kind of stuff, and then going through two- and three-a-day practices and all that kind of stuff. Not even professional athletes like it. They don't like to be pushed. They don't like their, their bodies to be pushed to the limits. That's no fun. But every person that joins a professional football team wants to win the Super Bowl and hold that Super Bowl trophy over their head someday. And so sometimes what that means is I've got to be willing to do what I don't really like to do in order to achieve what I've always wanted to achieve. It really comes back to a word that we don't like a lot, but it's so important in our lives, and that's the word discipline. Having that discipline in our lives to do what we know we need to do even when we don't feel like doing it. For instance, I'm sure some of you here tonight, God bless you, you didn't feel like coming tonight. Now, don't tell anybody that. You tell everybody you couldn't wait to get to the mine tonight, okay? You tell them that. 
But you may, you know, you may have had a terrible day at work or whatever, something, you know, your car broke down. I don't know, but you just didn't feel like coming, but you somehow were by God drawn here and you're here and hopefully it's going to benefit you and, and just encourage you to keep on moving forward in your walk with God. So that you can achieve what you always wanted to achieve, which was get out of this life everything that God imparted for you to get out of this life. And that will only be done sometimes when we do the things we don't necessarily want to do or like to do or feel like doing, but it enables us to achieve what we've always wanted to achieve. Now the other thing is this. The most important thing isn't necessarily setting a goal. Because setting a goal, anybody can set a goal. The more important thing is not the setting of the goal or even figuring out what the goal is. It's figuring out how do I achieve that goal and then how do I stay with it through the rest of my life. That's even more important than getting the goal out there. Because there's a lot of people, I mean, you know, whether it's New Year's resolutions or whatever, you know, there's times throughout our year where we set goals and I'm going after this and whatever. And the goal may be realistic. It, it may be, you know, everything that a goal should be. But if we don't take time to think through how am I going to achieve that and how am I going to stay with it in order to achieve that, the best goals just flush down the toilet. Well, how do I achieve the goal of becoming like Christ? How do I achieve the goal of, of knowing Him and knowing the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians 3.10? How do I achieve that? How do I get there? Well, I think you know me well enough to know I don't want to play the Holy Spirit in your life. I, I'm glad to share the Word of God with you, but I feel like that's something that the Holy Spirit needs to take that principle and that you need to pray and seek God's wisdom as to how. Because you know what? It's not going to be the same answer for every person in this room. Because we're all unique. And we're all going for the same goal. But we all aren't necessarily going to achieve that goal the same way with the same method. For instance, the way I study the Bible isn't maybe going to be the way you should study the Bible. Because we all need to find a way that we read and study the Bible and get the most out of it for us. We can't necessarily transfer somebody else's way of doing it, and it works for all of us. But I will say this. There are some general things, like, I'm going to be so shameless when I say this. I hope that most of you, and even more of you at Cornerstone, hear me out there, would say, you know, one of the ways that I can maybe achieve becoming more like Christ is by joining a Bible study like the mine. And getting into the Bible like the mind does every week. And that through something like that, that might be one way that I can achieve this goal is by joining a Bible study like the mind. But there's so many different avenues and ways. I don't want to be here to tell you what are the specific ways. But I do ask, besides thinking about the answer to the question, where will you be when you get to where you're going is to give some thought to if becoming like Christ is the goal for my life as a Christian, then God, how do you want me to get there? What are, what are the ways that you want me to, to begin to incorporate into my life? What are the things that you want me to begin to build into my life, to put on, if you will, in my life? And maybe even before I begin to put on something, maybe part of it is I need to lay aside something first. So, again, I don't want to play the Holy Spirit. He can do a much better job than I can. But let's give some thought to how we can achieve it. And then, how to stay with it. Staying power is so important in the Christian life. God wants us, in a sense, to burn with a controlled burn rather than this explosive burst of flame and then it's gone. I mean... Even though gas is very expensive, I'm going to use this, okay? You know, you can get a couple gallons of gas and, you know, put a match down there and boom, a real explosion, pretty flashy, pretty impressive, but that's it. That's it. And that's the way a lot of people, they come to Christ and, man, they get all excited about Christ and they just dive into the Christian life and, man, they're in church every week and they're in Bible studies and they're serving the Lord and it's like they just, wow, 
but they're almost like a shooting star. Because I've looked back over being in church all my life and being a pastor for 24 years, and there are a lot of people that I could list who are sort of used to be. Yeah, they used to come to church, and they used to be active, and they used to read their Bible, and they used to talk about God, and they used to be this, and they used to be that, but not anymore because they didn't have any staying power towards the goal. Some, somewhere along the line, they got detoured or they got distracted. In fact, if you would, go over to the book of Colossians, just another book over, and look at how easy this is to do and what Paul says to the Colossians here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says it's so important that we have staying power and that we as Christians burn with a controlled burn throughout our lives. So notice what he says to the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, okay, you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, sins are forgiven. Again, moment of salvation. But now notice what Paul says. Continue to live your lives in him. And that's continue till the day we die. There's no end to that continue. Rooted and built up in Him and firm in your faith just as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. And notice verse 8. Be careful not to allow anyone or anything to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul says we even as Christians can go through life and something else besides Christ can captivate us. And the world and Satan are very good about captivating us. They'll throw something out there and man, Christians just turn away from Christ and keeping their eyes on Christ and being captivated by Him and all of a sudden they get interested in this over here. And even this over here might be good but again, back to the whole thing about sometimes goals conflict and we got to prioritize. If my goal is to become like Christ, then I better keep my eyes on Christ and I better throughout my life be captivated by Christ and He alone. And I better not even allow something over here because if I get captivated by this, then that means I've lost my focus on what my goal is. And when we do that as Christians, we're no different than a business that loses sight of the original goal. And you and I could all name food businesses and airlines and different things out there in the world that they had a focus when they first got started. And it was a good goal. It was a good focus. But over the years, the staying power wasn't there. And they got captivated by other things and they lost their focus. And because they lost their focus, they lost their business. Because they never were as good doing what they originally did because they got off on something else. Christians are no different. And that's why Paul says, don't let anything captivate you in your life besides Jesus Christ. Fall in love with Him and make Him your first love. And don't let anyone or anything take the place of Christ in your life and you'll be okay. No wonder then Paul said to the Ephesians, guys, we've got to grow in love. We've got to continue to grow spiritually and mature spiritually so that we go after God, that we keep God as our focus, that we keep becoming like Jesus Christ as the goal of our life, and that we don't get distracted and become captivated by anything else. Because notice he goes on to say to the Colossians, for in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been filled up in him. Praise God. I don't need anything else besides Christ. We've talked about the concept of being filled up by Christ in the book of Ephesians. That, that God just wants to breathe his breath into my life and fill me up and stretch me beyond my limitations and allow me to experience him to all his fullness. And if I truly allow the fullness of God, which I have already because I'm in Christ and Christ is all the fullness of God, then I shouldn't be captivated by anything else because I should be filled up with God.
Now, with all that being said, go over with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 2. Because in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is writing some letters himself through the Apostle John to some churches. And one of the churches that Jesus chooses to write a letter to is a church at Ephesus. The very church that Paul was writing the letter to the Ephesians to that we're studying here in the mind, Jesus later on in that century wrote through the Apostle John a letter to that church. And this passage in Revelation illustrates the importance of staying power. Because I believe that when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians that we're studying, that they were growing in their love for God and that they were growing in their love for each other. But somewhere along the line in the first century between the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and later on in the first century when Jesus, through the Apostle John, wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, something had happened. You know how we know that? Listen to the words of Jesus. I'll start in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus commends them first. I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles but are not and have discovered that they are false. I am also aware that you've persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. But can I just insert a commentary here? All of those good things were not enough to replace what Jesus is about to say to that church. Notice what he says, verse 4. But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Wow. And Jesus says, guys, all the activity, all those things that you're doing doesn't make up for the fact that I'm no longer your first love. You need to put me first. You need to reprioritize. You need to make me the goal once again of your lives. You shooting after the wrong target in Ephesus. And if you don't get the right target back up to shoot for, you're going to lose your effectiveness as a, as a lampstand, as a light, as a witness in Ephesus. If I could compare Ephesus ancient Ephesus to a modern-day American city, probably the closest one I would come up with is Las Vegas. Ephesus was a lot like modern-day Las Vegas. So you can imagine how hard it was for Christians to have this vibrant, growing Christian church in a place like that. That's part of the reason why Paul says, I know the, the bent and, and what you're seeing every day and what's going on around you is this, but you know Christ now, so you've got to live differently. You've got to show them the reality of the power of Christ in your life, and you've got to be different in the way you think, in the way you live, in the way you love, than what you see all around you. And it will be because of that that people are attracted to the, to the Christ of the gospel and to the power of the gospel to transform lives. And that's why it was so important that Jesus says, guys, you've left your first love. And here's what happens. As a pastor who studied church for many, many years, who's been on staff at churches for many, many years, there's a life cycle of a church. When a church goes after Christ and makes Christ the goal and Christ is the first love of those people at that church, man, God is blessing, God is multiplying, God is using, God is growing, God is producing fruit. It, it's all over the place. But the moment that group of people begins to lose their first love, they are then replacing that first love with the love of things in the world. Because we're going to fill that void with something. 
If Christ isn't first place in my life, then I'm going to fill that void with something else. And when I get, begin to go after the things of the world, no wonder John says in 1 John 2.15, Christian, love not the things of the world, neither the things that are in the world, because they're going to pass away. And when I replace my love for Christ with the loving things of the world, the church begins to compromise and the church begins to go through corruption. And when the church compromises and goes through corruption, it loses its effective witness to those who don't know Christ. Because for all practical purposes, sort of like Paul was even encouraging the Ephesians back in the book of Ephesians, the way you guys are living who call yourselves Christians are really no different than the way people who don't know Christ live. So what's going to attract somebody who doesn't know Christ out there in the world to come and embrace Christ and embrace the church whenever they look at the church and they go, you people within the church who claim to follow Christ are no different than the way I live my life. You think the same way, you love the same way, you live the same way that I do. There is no difference. So why should I have Christ? And that's the life cycle. And that's why Jesus says, Verse 5, therefore remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. And simply by Jesus saying, I'll remove your lampstand, he'll just say, I'll remove the effective witness. You will not be a light in your community any longer. Physically, the church will be there. there. There'll still be a church. There'll still be people coming and whatever. But from God's perspective, the light is gone. People cannot look at that body of believers and see Christ any longer because they have compromised. Because they've gone after the things of the world. That's why this passage we're talking about tonight is so important, so right on. Because it's what we all need to be reminded of and it's what we all need to hear because in this world in which we live, I mean, doesn't the world tell us, oh, go after this and, and make that the target of your life and, and isn't this to be the most important thing in your life and whatever and pretty soon even Christians become, whoa, I'm, I'm confused, what, what am I doing and, and where will I be when I get where I'm going? Sometimes I don't even know where I'm going. But God lays it all out very clearly. He says, Christian, here's where you need to go. Go after Christ. Paul says, my aim is to know Him. So with this goal in mind, I strive. And that word strive, that word press in your just means to go after. Go after Christ. Make Him the goal of your life. And begin to ask the Lord, Lord, because he'll help you. Lord, what do you want me to lay down? What, what old piece of clothing do you want me to lay aside? What new piece of clothing do you want me to put on? And then God, help me figure out in my life, what are some ways that I can achieve becoming like Christ? That's my goal, but how do I achieve it? Is it getting involved in a Bible study? Is it, is it having a prayer partner? What specific things, God, do you want me to incorporate in my life so that I can achieve that goal? Is it joining a life group, a small church, men's ministry, women's ministry? Whatever it is. I even hesitate to begin to say things because I know I leave things out. Whatever it is, all I'm asking tonight is just let the Holy Spirit have His way in your life. And then, also ask the Lord this. Okay, Lord, You've shown me what my goal is. You're beginning to show me how to achieve that goal. How do I stay with it? How do I have that staying power in my life? How do, I, how do I live my life with that controlled burn over my entire life rather than, wow, they were great for a couple months and then, boom. How do I do that, Lord? How do I do that? Jesus, 
wants to be the first love of our lives. And you know what? Even with this group here tonight, if every person in this auditorium, if we truly made Jesus Christ the first love of our lives, we'd turn this church upside down. Because you think of what Jesus did with 12 people who finally made Jesus Christ the love of their life. The Bible says they turned the world upside down. Well, if 12 people can turn the world upside down, so can several hundred. If we just make Jesus the love of our life. He loves us so much. The only proper response is to say, God, I love you back. I want to live the rest of my life making you the priority of my life. Let's close in prayer. God, I, I just want your spirit to fall upon this place in a special way tonight. You know I have just shared with these precious folks who I love so much what you have burned into my heart these last couple of weeks. And God, I just pray that all of us would just honestly look at our lives and say, where will I be when I get to where I'm going? And Jesus, you know if you truly are our first love, the first priority, preeminent. And God, I just pray for all of us that first that if you are or if you're not, that we would have the desire and the willingness and the want to make you number one in our lives. Because, Lord, I'm convinced that if that's our desire, you'll help us. You'll help us. You'll help us to lay aside those things that are getting in the way. You'll help us put on the things we need to put on. You'll show us through your word and through your spirit and through the wisdom of, of others how to achieve it and how to stay with it. But God, most of all, let's just be captivated by Christ and not by anyone or anything else. Jesus, I, I just want to say on behalf of all of us here tonight, we love you. We truly love you. And may we honor you in the way we live our lives from this day forward. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I love you. I've missed you. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Tuesday evening.